Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, it's, um, sorry, it's, I don't know if it's cold in here or if it's just me. That's a lie, I, I know it's just me. It's been, for 48 hours since I last drank any of the blood, I just, slept for five hours or so. I I have food, but I haven't been hungry for days, if I'm honest with you. I just have hooked myself up to some more IV fluids, which I warmed up, so hopefully that'll help. I'm going to try and go as long as I can before I drink any more of the blood, if only to just put off making this decision. Then I'm going to die either way. Only if I, I string out my doses, that's an extra few hours, and that's the right grand choice. Live three more days, maybe, depending on how much my tolerance builds up between doses, or bite the bullet and drink the last two at once, and then just see. Casper says it's not totally random who lives and dies through the process. Yeah, it's super comforting, that, isn't it? Not totally random. He said he reckoned I had a decent chance of getting through because I've responded so well to his... God, I've been trying to avoid calling it what it is. His blood. Doesn't matter now, really. I must have drunk almost a gallon of it. Fuck, I hope he's okay. I hope he's not here because he's given me so much. I could tell it was hard stucking me up like this, but he said he'd be back three days ago. He said he'd be back, and I can't help but thinking something terrible has happened to him. Granted, he's pretty hard to kill. I-, I watched him come off a speeding motorbike with only a bit more than a scratch. 
but he can be hurt. Especially if he's weaker, right? I, I don't know how it all works, but like, that makes sense, doesn't it? God. Anyway, this isn't helping anyone, me just fussing about that, right? Um, what was I? Oh yeah. Casper uh, reckons I could probably live through this change because I've done pretty well with the blood so far, but he won't go as far as to say he was sure I'd live through it. Like a, a fucking doctor avoiding giving time frames to a terminally ill patient. Which I guess I technically am. <laughs> but from the patient part, Mum would say I'm terminally impatient. <laughs> oh, this is all besides the point of. I think before I napped, I got up to mum asking me to move out, didn't I? Yeah. Um, the great irony of it all is I remember the girl on the gurney more because it was the day mum spoke to me about leaving again, not the other way around, like Casper would insist. Because after that happened, stuff was just normal. I didn't see another one of the victims with the torn out throats for months. I'd taken my mum's kitchen pep talk to heart and dedicated myself to finding somewhere else to live and just shy of a week before I was due to move to my new one-bedroom abode, I saw another one. This is Not Quite Dead, episode two, Beer and Bloodlust. It was early on a Tuesday morning at the tail end of a long shift. Uh, rushed in by an ambulance, the patient was an older guy in his 70s. He had the same loafers my granddad always wore shoved onto his limp feet. He was a sparrow of a man, so light that when we lifted him onto the hospital bed, I wouldn't have been surprised to learn his bones were hollow. The gash on his neck hadn't been wadded with gauze, but a tea towel pressed there by the neighbours who'd found him down the side of the house when they went to put the bins out. Underneath the wound was a violent, ugly thing. I thought back to the girl on the gurney, how the gash in her neck had been similar. And it couldn't have been accidental, the depth and rage needed to cut so wide, so deep, but it wasn't a cut. It was a tear, ragged-edged, strips of skin hanging over exposed muscle. There was a hatred in what had been done to this elderly man who always said hello to his neighbours, who fed their cat when they went on holiday, who watched the kids after school for them when they had to work late. Ambulance Terry told me all of this after the fact. This guy had clearly been there some time. By the time we'd so much as hooked him up to the monitors, he was as good as gone. Well, we tried useless CPR, but of course, there was barely blood inside of him for his heart to pump, so it didn't help. It's funny, Terry said. Injury like that, you'd expect there to be blood everywhere, but that bit on his shirt was the worst of it. A little splatter on the paving slabs, that's it. Don't you think that's weird? I was too tired for weird. I felt like I'd been too tired for weird for about a hundred years. But I didn't know what to say to Terry. Terry could tell. He just stood there smoking. And he said he'd seen my ex, Ben, in town the other night, throwing up in a gutter in Micklegate. <laughs> oh, God. And then he invited me to go out for a pint. I hadn't been going out for a while. I kept giving excuses. I, I don't know what it was. I, I was busy. I was just tired. Looking for flats was taking up all of my free time. But apparently this was not a sufficient excuse. And Terry had been conspiring with some of my other co-workers, it turned out. 
And he'd even checked my rotor to make sure I wasn't working the next day. I was quite charmed, but I was also annoyed. I'd been looking forward to sleeping in and not thinking about anything for a few hours, but Terry was right. I'd hardly seen my friends outside of work for months because all my spare time had been rammed with flat viewings and scrolling through Rightmove, which had replaced Grindr as my chosen app for mindless scrolling and hopeless attempts at matches. I actually quite enjoyed looking at houses when I wasn't trying to find somewhere to live. The reason it had taken me the best part of five months to actually find a place was that within 20 minutes or so of opening the app, I'd find myself removing the maximum rent I'd allow myself to pay and eventually switching out to properties for sale, sorting from most to least expensive. <laughs> it perhaps wasn't the healthiest hobby, looking at the interiors of luxury homes I'd never be able to afford, but it was something at least. Still, it probably didn't do anything good for my state of mind, so I let Terry talk me into going out. He told me, consider tonight your big good luck with moving out piss up. I went home intending to sleep, but in the end I spent a couple of hours packing, another hour helping Grace help Tammy with her homework. I slept maybe two hours before Terry called. <laughs> the sun was going down and the sound of my phone made me jump. I remember I hit my head on the exercise bike and it was a good job it was still covered with all the winter coats, otherwise it would have been a nasty bruise. I could hear Grace and Tammy arguing downstairs, mum occasionally interjecting. For a split second, I was glad I was moving out soon. It was short-lived though, as I waded through boxes trying to find something to wear. I ended up really overdressed in this floral shirt and these raspberry chinos I hadn't seen since I'd moved back into my mum's. They were lurking at the back of the built-in wardrobe behind mum's wedding dress and the zipped tailor bags which held dad's old military stuff, so it was actually possible I hadn't seen them since before I'd originally moved out. When I arrived at the pub, Terry whistled at me, which didn't make me feel any better about the outfit. Anyway, it took me a couple of drinks to get there, but I did begrudgingly begin to have a good time. People were asking me when I was moving out and every time I said it was Monday they would cheer and buy me a drink and just kept doing shots. I ended up getting horrifically drunk. I was stumbling between pubs and clubs. We accrued more friends each time we changed venues as people finished their shifts. By midnight the party was nine people strong and we were headed for a club down by the river. It was one of my favourite places to go. A lot of places in York feel geared towards a specific group. A third of the city's population at any one time is university students, so they have their bars, and another third is tourists, and they have their own places too. There's a few little pubs that feel like the home of the locals, which I technically am, but like my proclivity for campness means I don't often fit in very well there. This club, though, it was one of the rare spots that wasn't specifically populated by any of these one, three groups. It was a real mix of younger locals, students and tourists who weren't afraid to step off the beaten track. And the music was always great. Uh, as soon as we arrived, Terry insisted we did shots, which was definitely a mistake. The room was already spinning and I was starting to sway on my feet. We found a table on the balcony above the dance floor, which was normally a great spot, but I couldn't stop myself looking down at the flashing light swirling on the dance floor and it did nothing for the spinning in my head. I got up and I made my wobbly way down the stairs and out into the cool night air. I breathed deep. People were smoking and chattering around me. I thought about maybe sitting down on the pavement, but even as hammered as I was, the stickiness of the floor in the cordoned off smoking section did not feel appealing to me. So I steeled myself, stepped out of the roads, and turned down one of the little alleyways between the buildings where I knew there were some stairs I could sit on. As soon as I turned the corner, though, something felt wrong. I couldn't describe exactly what it was. I could still hear the music from the club, the chatter of the smokers outside, but it was like they were all much further away than they should have been. The street lamp was at the end of the alley, so it should have been bright, but for some reason it felt immensely dark. I could feel sweat cooling on my skin as though an icy wind was blowing, but the air was completely still. 
my heart was thumping in my chest. There was something on the floor down the side of the stairs. I should have turned and run, but something made me take a step forward instead. I don't know why, maybe it was the booze, maybe it was the strange, cold, dark silence of the alleyway, but I couldn't stop myself. I stepped forward. Closer. Closer. I knew what I was going to see before I saw it. A man crumpled over himself, like he'd been stood up fine, and then all of a sudden, all of his limbs had given up at once. His eyes were open, staring unseeing past me as I crouched beside him. His neck was torn open, and though there was blood on his shirt and smeared on his neck, the wound itself was almost dry, just glistening in the low light of the eye. He was the, th the third one. I saw... Go. I shouldn't have waited this long. I wish I could explain to you what it feels like. The blood is cold, but as soon as it touches my tongue, it fills me with heat. It tastes like... like sweetness, like daylight, like life. Casper, he says to him, the blood of a vampire tastes like fortified wine in comparison to the freshly squeezed juice of a grape of other blood. I don't know what he means. Not yet, anyway. Blood, to me, just tastes like blood. This blood, Casper's blood. There's iron there, yes, or maybe copper. The taste of a penny on your tongue, and... Uh, but more than the taste of it, it's the quiet in my head, in my bones. The quiet. It's so soft. It's like being wrapped in cotton wool. The first time it was like this for so long, but... I wonder how long this will last now. I. Whatever happens, I am. I am changing. There are no guarantees. Casper was careful to make that clear. I know even if I drink every last drop that I have right now, there's a chance that nothing will happen except that I'll die. But it's. it's made me different already. I'm already something that I wasn't before. If I die, what they bury isn't going to be human. Not the whole way. Not after this. That's okay, though. I've lived weeks I would never have seen otherwise. It's okay. Whatever happens, it's okay. Really, I should let myself die. I should string out what I have and use it to go visit my family, to eat my favourite foods, do all the things that dying people do. At the end of it, I should just lie down and let the injuries the blood is holding at bay slowly take hold. The problem is we're pretty sure that drinking the blood of the undead makes your body slowly stop producing new blood cells, so as soon as I run out of the blood, that's going to hit me too, and the more of the blood I've drunk, the longer it's gone, the worse, the harder it'll hit, the pain of my body shutting down. The right choice would have been to never drink the blood at all, but we'll get to that. I was telling you about the alleyway, 
The man crumpled like a rag doll, his neck torn ragged like his stitches had come loose. I stared at him for a long moment before I remembered what you're supposed to do in situations like that and called the police. They closed the club, strung up crime scene tape across the bottom of the alley. An ambulance came to take the dead man away. I made a statement to the police as they rolled his body into the back. The whole time I felt sort of numb, almost like I feel at work, disconnected. But as soon as I got in the cab, I started crying. I couldn't stop crying when I let myself into the house, and even though I tried my best to be quiet, Mum came out of her bedroom and saw me. She didn't ask what was wrong. She just made us tea, and we sat on the couch, with my head in her lap. She stroked my hair till the sun came up. So yeah, that was the third one I saw. I didn't see another one of the patients with the torn open necks for a long time after that third one. You'd hear stories sometimes in the break room. Every few months, it seemed, one of them would roll up into A&E and die on a gurney. There was nothing we could do for them. The problem is when you lose that much blood, your heart speeds up to try and work as hard as possible to get what blood you have left around your body. But it can only work that hard for so long. It's a very short window where there's enough power left in the muscles to effectively get blood and fluids back into a patient before the heart just gives up. Obviously, victims' families had been demanding inquests and autopsies, and even though it wasn't usual to be kept up to speed with what happened to your patients after they died, news about these ones with their torn-out necks would make their way back down the grapevine. All of them had died from heart failure due to massive blood loss from an injury in their neck, where something had torn through skin and muscle right through to the jugular vein. Rumours started going round that there was a serial killer, that the victims were being attacked elsewhere, drained of their blood, and dumped in the alleyways and cycle paths where they had been found. That didn't make a lot of sense though, we all agreed, because draining blood like that would take so long that their hearts should have gone into distress and failure long before they were at the levels of blood loss we were seeing them at. Whatever was happening, their blood was draining fast enough that they were alive when there was hardly any of it left. The fourth one I saw was a middle-aged woman in athletic wear. She was young, fit, healthy. Her heart kept going longer than it might have otherwise, long enough that we managed to get through a whole blood transfusion before she died under our hands. It was mysterious, bizarre, like all of them were. A few days later, the usual findings came back from the morgue. We talked about it all again, but by the end of our shifts, she and the others had faded into the backs of our minds, drowned out by the hundreds of other patients we saw untreated. Sounds so callous, doesn't it? But I don't know. The next day I met Haley in town for coffee. She'd been back in York two weeks, now a fully licensed doctor, training at the hospital to be a haematologist. It was a long road to qualification in that field. She'd been nearly 30 by the time she qualified, she told me, and then added with a wink that 28 is not nearly 30 when she saw me looking a bit dejected. She was always sweet. She asked what I'd been up to, and I filled her in about my latest trials and tribulations, namely a string of ill-fated hookups with this guy I'd met on Grinder, who I didn't like but was excellent in bed. He made insane amounts of washing up, this guy. Like, every time he came round, he insisted on staying the night, and every time he did, he got up and made breakfast. Every single time. Haley was kind of offended that I was so upset about this. She said he sounded practically marriageable, but, like, she didn't understand. This man. He would come in, and every morning he would raid the fridge. And he cooked like he was making a fucking YouTube video or something. He would put everything into these little bowls before he added it to the dish. He'd go through the fridge, use all available crockery, and sure, the food was good, but, like, I didn't have a dishwasher, and there was not a lot of space in that kitchen. It was just carnage. 
he'd cook for me and then he'd expect me to be all grateful and then he'd just leave me with all of this mess. And I'm pretty sure he was a Tory. Like, 90% sure. Can't be 100% because, you know, he was gay and he was nice when he tried to be, but, like, he definitely ironed his underwear, if you know what I mean. Hayley's romantic life wasn't very much better than mine. Turns out working 90-hour weeks in a regular shift makes a terrible basis for a relationship. The weather was really nice. We found ourselves picking up this old routine that we used to have, going from cafe to cafe on a cafe crawl, talking about nothing and enjoying each other's company. It was extremely nice to have her back in town. I remember feeling strangely good about like realising I'd missed her. So much had been going on, what, with the moving out and the torn neck patients and just work in general. That I don't know, I started to feel like I'd lost the capacity for sentiments like missing people. It was just nice. Before long, though, I had to get on a bus and go back to work. Hayley waved me off, intending to go home for some sleep before her own shift started late in the evening. I was buzzing. I had so much caffeine in my veins. I think we'd been to four coffee shops that afternoon and dressed in my uniform, my hands were practically shaking. It was a Thursday and Thursdays usually weren't so bad work-wise. It is a great taboo for any workers in the NHS to describe a shift as probably quiet. But were it not for the fear of incurring the wrath of the gods, that's how I might have described Thursdays. True to form, I spent a lot of time setting broken arms, sending off for blood tests and requesting a doctor review notes for requests for emergency medication. It was pretty quiet. About four hours in, I stole five minutes to go and smoke when an ambulance hurtled into the receiving line. I threw the cigarette down, half-smoked, more than a little bit annoyed, and went inside to clean up to help mitigate whatever disaster we were being faced with. Just as I headed inside, a car came screeching up behind the ambulance. I started immediately yelling, because like you can't just park in the ambulance bay. And the guy, he was getting out of the car, he looked really annoyed. But he got back in the car and pulled away, so there was that at least. I went back inside and there was a new patient being transferred on a gurney out of the ambulance. Female, light 30s, wound to the neck, BP, 80 over 25. It was another one. The fifth one I'd seen with my own two eyes and just one day after the fourth. We began preparing, like we didn't know she was going to die at any moment, but before we could start, all the doctor's bleeps went off. There was a massive car crash. There were three patients in critical condition arriving at the hospital in five minutes. Me, Tracy and the junior doctor who was on that night all looked at the woman who was on the gurney and it was just like, so much of working in an emergency department is about prioritising. Sometimes it's easy. The patient bleeding out on the floor is a higher priority than the one with a broken ankle. Other times it's not so easy. There we were all looking at this patient with her strangely bloodless neck wound, heart monitor showing her pulse sluggishly continuing. She was in irreversible shock. We all knew there was nothing we could do for her, not realistically. There was a flurry of movement and efficient delegation. People ran to panic stations, cleared space, informed theatres. I was moving on autopilot, moving things, grabbing things, maximum efficiency, as the new patients rolled through the doors. In the chaos of the circumstances, right behind the EMTs, a man walked in. I don't know why I noticed him. He was walking slowly, calmly, so he should have blended into the background, and it seemed like to everyone else he did, because nobody thought to stop him as he crossed the waiting area and onto the triage ward. His expression was unreadable, strangely unmoved in a scene full of such chaos and action. It was like he was walking across an entirely different room from the one the rest of us were standing in. 
He lifted his chin, eyes half closing for a moment, and pulled back the curtain on the patient with the torn neck. And then he slipped through. As soon as he was out of sight, whatever it was about him that had caused me to freeze on the spot broke, and I jolted forwards, knees strangely unstable. I was going to tell him to get out, to leave, but when I pulled back the curtain, he was standing over the patient with one hand on her face and the other one above it, held in a fist, like he was going to punch her. I cried out, panicked, and he turned to look at me in the same instant, and I realised the hand on the patient's face was actually holding open her eye, and the fingers on his fist, just inches above her face, were outlined in red. A drop of blood fell from his trembling fist and into the patient's wide open eye. I remember saying, what the fuck are you doing? Didn't know what else to do. The man dropped his hand from the woman's face and wiped his palm on his jeans, smearing blood all down them, and said nothing. Brushed past me, knocking me aside. I nearly fell down. I turned to follow, but then the patient's heart monitor bleeped violently and she gasped. She was rolling side to side, saying, where am I? Where am I? Her eyes were wide open. Her BP was climbing. Her heart was hammering hard. I was so stunned, I was rooted to the spot. I called for help, and before I could think, we were hooking up IVs, pumping this patient full of fluids. It took an hour, but she was smiling, chatting with me and the other nurses by the end of it. Mel, another senior nurse, said she'd never seen anything like that before, and I told her I hadn't before either. I didn't tell her about the man. What could I say? Some dude with his hair in a bun squeezed his blood into her eyeball, and it magicked her back to life. Number five, it turned out, was called Linda. She worked in a coffee shop, not far from my mum's place. I'd probably met her. It's strange, she said. I was out with my friends and we were dancing. We were a little drunk, but I don't remember what happened. I went to get another drink and that's the last thing I remember. That was all she knew. When I told her we were going to send off her bloods to get tested to see if she'd been spiked, she looked really surprised because she'd been in this bar called the Star and Lamb and when she said that, I was surprised too. The Star and Lamb is this really fancy place. It did seem unusual that she could have been spiked there, but, like, I suppose degenerates are already degenerates and are unlikely to give much of a shit about the ambience of the establishment they're in. There wasn't really much to say about it after that, so I just carried on with my shift, stitching cuts, helping monitor the car crash patients, handing out medications. After an hour of making my way around, I stuck my head round Linda's curtain, and she was lying flat on her back eyes half closed. When I'd left, she'd been sat up, texting people, letting them know she was fine, and I said her name, no response. I crept up to her side, snapped my fingers, Linda, can you speak to me? I said, nothing, nothing at all. I glanced at her monitors, her blood pressure was tanking, I could see the numbers dropping as I was standing there. It wasn't as bad yet as when she came in, but it was about as much better as you'd expect it to be after one blood transfusion and a round of fluids. Her heart was racing and she developed a new symptom, a raging fever which was already making her sweat enough that it was soaking through the thin blanket she was draped in over her freshly installed hospital gown. It took half an hour to re-stabilise her and when we did, she didn't regain consciousness. I was pretty sure she would after a few hours. That's much more normal after the amount of blood she had lost. The strange thing wasn't the crash and this unconsciousness, but the lucidity and return to almost normal blood pressure levels that she'd experienced for almost two hours before the crash happened. She'd been on the brink of death, so deep into full system shock we'd all but declared her dead, and then turned it around out of the blue. Nobody could think of anything that would account for it. Her first round of blood tests came back and said she hadn't been spiked. Her blood alcohol level was low enough that she could have legally driven, so she wasn't lying about not being drunk either. 
Mel said that maybe because she didn't have a lot of blood left in her, it wouldn't have shown up, but we both knew that wasn't how blood tests work. I said to Mel, before she perked up, I saw something. Mel asked what, and it was so strange. It was like I couldn't get the words out. I stood there for what felt like ages, uselessly flapping my mouth, and eventually I just shook my head and said, sorry. Mel asked me if I'd eaten anything, and I'd only had a pot noodle, to be fair, so she told me to go off, take a break. While Linda was still unconscious, we took another round of blood tests. These ones said she had an abnormally high level of white blood cells, which hadn't been the case with the first round, which we'd only drawn an hour and a half earlier. Almost like she'd suddenly developed a massive infection, but there was no trace of whatever that could have been, except for her body's response to it. By the end of my shift, Linda's fever had broken and she'd been transferred to a ward for monitoring. Amidst the rush and the hurry, Linda faded from everyone's focus, except mine. She'd come up again, no doubt, the one patient with the ragged neck who'd miraculously survived, but I couldn't shake it because of the man. Because I'd seen him, whoever he was. I couldn't find a way to tell anyone about it, to explain what I'd seen, because every time that I tried, it was like my throat was sealing shut. It was... The only explanation I could think of was that it was just so strange that I could barely believe that it happened, let alone find a way to articulate it, but even in my own head that didn't ring true. Whenever I thought about trying to explain what I had seen, my throat felt swollen and thick, like the words just physically could not leave me. By the time I was driving home, I'd almost convinced myself that I'd imagined it. Almost. I dreamed about him for the first time, the night after that shift. It wasn't a nightmare, but it wasn't a good dream, either. Full of shifting shapes and things moving in the dark. He'd been tall, but in my imagination he loomed even taller, the dark hair he'd kept back off his face, falling forward, his eyes bloodshot, dark as a shark's. I woke up sweating in the mid-afternoon, in the April sunlight. The strangeness of it all faded really quickly, but I kept thinking about his face, his dark eyes, his hand aloft above that patient, blood dripping from his fingers. I wish he'd come back. I just, I worry something has happened to him. He was scared, I think, though he didn't want to let on. Casper doesn't like to think of himself as something that can get scared. I think it's easier for him that way. But I know he gets scared because he's careful. He's very careful. Except with me, he says. He always sounds really upset about that, but I don't mind it. No. I don't mind. Okay, the sun's coming up. I, I should shower and leave the house. I'll try to see my family before I, you know. Casper will be back. He will. He said he would be. It's been three days, but he said he'd be back. And I'm not dead yet. Not quite. Not Quite Dead is written, performed, and edited by Pippin A. Remajer under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. Live. Laugh. Bite.